Hello and welcome to the fifth and final episode in this podcast series from the Link Latest Employee Incentives Team on Governing Pay. How do we get here and where next? I'm Harry Meek, an associate in the team in London. And I'm Kaylee Jones, also an associate in the team. In the previous episodes, we looked at the current corporate governance requirements in determining board pay, the impact of COVID-19, the growing focus on ESG factors and the latest guidance from industry bodies and regulators. Today, we're going to discuss what's in store for corporate governance remuneration following the government's recent executive pay proposals, which are out for consultation until the 8th of July. Things never seem to stand still when it comes to board pay, do they? So, Harry, why do we have new proposals from the government now? Well, the proposals follow some notable corporate failures, including Carillion and BHS. The government then commissioned reviews. You may have heard of the Kingman Report on the Financial Reporting Council, the regulator, the Bryden Report on the Quality of Effectiveness of Audit, and the CMA's Audit Market Study. The government has cogitated on those reports, and these proposals in the white paper are the result. But am I right in thinking we're not going to see any change anytime soon? That's right. We've got until the 8th of July to submit comments on the white paper, and many, but not all, the proposals need legislation to implement them, so we don't know when when any changes will have effect. Even so, Harry, it's probably important to take note of what's proposed on the pay front at this stage, because there are things that our clients and companies should be doing to prepare. There are so many proposals out there, and I guess some are quite complex. Against this backdrop, though, the ones that apply directly to board pay do seem quite clear. They're not necessarily straightforward, though, and do need to be seen in the context of the white paper as a whole. Yeah, exactly. The white paper focuses on changes to regulator powers and to many aspects of audit. The corporate governance reforms include giving the regulator stronger enforcement powers against directors for breach of their statutory duties on corporate reporting and audit related responsibilities. The complementary proposal is for listed companies to strengthen existing powers to withhold and recover executive pay. It's what we call malice and clawback. So diving into malice and clawback in a bit more detail, as we know, Uh, LSE premium listed companies must comply with the corporate governance code or explain what they're doing differently and why. The code already requires having malice and clawback provisions for board pay. The 2018 reforms introducing this left it up to the companies to decide on the trigger events for these. At the same time as the 2018 reforms, the FRC published an accompanying board effectiveness guidance. That lists five possible trigger events as payments based on erroneous or misleading data, misconduct, misstatement of accounts, serious reputational damage and corporate failure. Investors certainly expect at least that list of trigger events, but many companies have had these or similar trigger events for the Madison clawback. The government is now asking the regulator, the FRC or its successor, the Audit Reporting and Governance Authority, to consider changes to the code on two fronts related to malice and clawback. First, to require a minimum period of application of at least two years after an award is made. This is ambiguous as malice is applied before vesting, so could be one year after grant, for example, in an annual bonus plan or up to three or more years for LTIPs. I think this is referring instead to a post-payment clawback period of two years. And secondly, the code should require a minimum list of trigger events. The white paper proposes some and is asking whether there should be others. Here's the list. It's material misstatement of results or an error in performance calculations, material failure of mismanagement and internal controls, misconduct, conduct leading to financial loss, reputational damage, 
an unreasonable failure to protect the interests of employees and customers. Thanks, Harry. It's an interesting list, particularly as these aren't quite the same as those currently in the FRC's board effectiveness guidance. For example, corporate failure is missing, but maybe that is a good thing because in practice it can be really tricky to work out what corporate failure really means. That's right, Kayleigh. And the triggers of conduct leading to financial loss and failure of risk management are similar to what we see in the financial sector for paying banks and asset managers. In practice, banks have used those particular triggers to hold individuals accountable for risk management failings since the financial crisis. Are we going to see something similar in other sectors, I wonder? Well, Harry, at the moment, only financial sector businesses have mandatory and detailed malice and clawback requirements. So even with a specific list of triggers, as long as malice and clawback aren't just in the code, it will still be possible for companies to explain their non-compliance. But the government says it will it will review the position to decide whether to extend malice and clawback to all listed companies, potentially through changes to the listing rules. Interesting, because if that happens, malice and clawback will become effectively mandatory. What's even more interesting is that another regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, or FCA, will be in charge. The FCA, of course, already supervises malice and clawback in the financial sector, and that's put firms under pressure to actually apply them in a practice. So it results in closer scrutiny and increased pressure on companies to ensure these executives are held to account when things go wrong. Yeah, that's right. It's a really interesting point. So it really leads us to the question of what our clients and companies can do now. Um, our experience from how things pan out in the financial sector has shown that it's crucial for remuneration committees to have specific but also flexible powers. This means contractual powers to adjust award outcomes, operate malice and clawback where necessary and comply with reporting obligations. So the code requires malice and clawback in qualities and plan rules, but that's not enough. You need to check not just the bonus and incentive plan rules, but also the performance conditions, your employee comms, any service agreements too, to ensure they work together to give your Remco enough flexibility to act if necessary. Exactly. So it's not just something for one document. Companies will need to take a more well-rounded and robust approach. If the white paper pro proposals are implemented, there are potentially emerging parallels with penny regulation in the financial services sector, as we've kind of touched on in this podcast. In our next podcast series, we'll take a look in more detail at how pay regulation has worked in the financial sector. For example, on malice and clawback. We'll draw out what we can learn and identify some pointers to help corporate remuneration committees, which should be of particular relevance in view of the changes in the pipeline. In the meantime, please do get in touch if you'd like to discuss any of the topics we've spoken about today in greater detail. That's all we have time for here, so we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. And remember, you can access earlier episodes in the series whenever you have time. Thanks very much, Harry. Thanks, Kayleigh.